Shut up and sit down. Listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. Here's your host, John Lund. Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. I'm your host, John Lund, the multimedia sports enthusiast, bringing you this sports show. What's it like to write for Sports Illustrated for more than two decades? We'll talk about that and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve. On episode 110 of The Bridge. <laughs> Greetings and salutations, everyone. Welcome back to another installment of The Bridge, coming to you live on Sports Radio America here on Wednesday, May 9th, 2018, 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern Time, to bring you the best and brightest of the sports world. That's right, The Bridge is live on Sports Radio America Monday through Friday with a brand new show on Wednesday nights on the East Coast, though the show is technically pre-recorded. If you do miss the live show, the podcast version of The Bridge is available after that broadcast, which means you can find the newest episode and additional content from the show later on Wednesday night on iTunes under The Bridge Sports Podcast or on my website at londonbridge.com. I'll save all the ways you can listen to The Bridge and where you can find the show until the end of this latest installment. If anything, you can call in or text into the show 24-7 at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Contact the show with your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you'll be featured in the next installment of The Bridge. All right, let's get into the fun stuff. Give me the siren. The Dark Knight has fallen. Matt Harvey's time with the New York Mets is over after Harvey refused a bullpen roll or demotion to the minor leagues and was traded to the Reds for a bag of wooden bats and season tickets for the Bengals. Harvey's lifestyle off the field in New York was similar to Derek Jeter's without the actual on-field success or being able to hide from the paparazzi. Funny enough, Matt and the Mets found themselves in the tabloids around this time last year for the Dark Knight's night out and for a good luck charm left behind in the locker room. It's time for the number one news anchor parody segment in sports radio. Here's this week's edition of Sports News Red Like Real News. York Mets tend to have enough problems on the field that they could do without any added ones off of it. However, the lure of New York City nightlife and the watchful eye of the city's tabloids often bring more bad than good for the Metropolitans. The latest drama for New York's second-best baseball team involves a dark weekend for the dark night and a poorly placed dark sex toy. First, there was Matt Harvey, a pitcher pegged as the next savior for the Mets pitching staff who is yet to live up to those expectations, but parties like he has. This season hasn't had the best of starts to this point either, with Harvey sporting a 5.14 ERA in six appearances on the mound. With Harvey slated for a start against the Miami Marlins last Sunday, the right-hander was notably absent when the Mets showed up to City Fields the day before. A three-day suspension and a miss to that start was announced from Mets Brass, and rumors began to swirl to where, oh where, the dark night could be. Original reports stated that Harvey remained home with a migraine and had difficulties when attempting to report his absence to the Mets. It didn't take long to discover that a throbbing head would have come from a different source. Sources cited Harvey at One Oak in New York City, where he celebrated Cinco de Mayo well into the early morning hours before then heading out to the golf course later that day. 
After not hearing from him for much of the day, or perhaps not believing his alibi, the Mets even went as far as to send security officials to Harvey's apartment later that night to check on the Dark Knight, who reportedly answered the door in his Batman onesie. Which is of course an assumption since there was no mention of what type of pajamas Harvey wears. He would then be informed of his suspension the following day, and missed out on about $82,000. Harvey would later hold a public apology two days later, stating that he was embarrassed for his actions and ready to get back on track. What he failed to mention was that he also might be suffering from a broken heart. After his former supermodel lover Adriana Lima was spotted at the Met Gala after party, with her former boyfriend, New England Patriots wide receiver, Julian Edelman. In layman's terms, Harvey saw his girl with an ex, blew off some steam with his buddies with some margaritas and a game of golf, and felt like hiding under the covers to wallow in misery for a literal dark night before pulling himself together for his scheduled Sunday start. Perhaps Harvey is indeed the hero the Mets deserve, but not the one they need right now. Shortly before the Harvey announcement came one of the biggest boners in Mets social media history. As part of a new tradition, the Mets now literally crown their player of the game and show off that achievement on their social media. The hero of Cinco de Mayo was TJ Rivera, who hit his first home run and also contributed a game-tying double in a Mets win. The picture documenting the moment seemed innocent enough, until some internet detectives noticed a large rubber phallus standing in rookie catcher Kevin Ploiecki's locker. The picture was quickly deleted and reposted with a proper crop, but the damage had been done. Reporters then had the unfortunate task of asking players who actually owned the sex toy and if Harvey's suspension came from the ramifications of the rubber. Newsday writer Mark Craig even tweeted out, I went to Jay's school so I could tweet this. I'm told Matt Harvey's suspension is not related to the sex toy fiasco from the other day. To no surprise, no player stepped up to claim ownership of the foul phallus. But when it comes to superstitions in baseball, there's no telling what luck the sex toy will bring. A silent guardian. A watchful protector. The rally dildo. I'm John Lund. For sports news, read like real news. Let's take a quick break to meet the Mets. When we come back, we'll talk to a senior writer at Sports Illustrated about his sports writing career of more than 40 years. We'll be right back on the bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. As you heard earlier in the show, you can call in or text in to the bridge anytime at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Leave a voicemail or text your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you'll be featured in the next installment of The Bridge. Now, we do like to pose a question each show to help give you the urge to call in or text in to The Bridge. This week, we want to know, who is your favorite sports writer and why? Now to this week's guest in Tim Layden. He's a senior writer at Sports Illustrated, where he's worked now for close to 25 years, writing NFL, Olympics, horse racing, and everything in between. Tim cut his sports writing teeth covering high school and local college sports before working his way up to SI and has covered just about everything along the way. He currently holds the beat for horse racing and track and field. He hasn't missed an Olympics since 1992 and attended his first Masters this past month. So there's not much that Tim hasn't written about, and we'll chat about how he got into the sports writing industry, the path that took him to Sports Illustrated, how his writing style has come to be through that process and his versatility in what he's covered and the industry itself and much more. You can follow Tim on Twitter. He's at S-I-Tim-Layden. That's S-I-T-I-M-L-A-Y-D-E-N. And without further ado, let's get into that interview. 
We're here with Tim Layden. He's a senior writer at Sports Illustrated, where he's worked now for close to 25 years, writing NFL, Olympics, horse racing, and everything in between. Tim, thanks so much for joining the show. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, John. Happy to be here. Happy to talk. Excellent. There's plenty to talk about, plenty of things that you've been fortunate enough to cover over the years as well. Before we get into some of the more recent things you've written about, I wanted to turn back the clocks a little bit to get started. When did you know that you wanted to pursue a career as a writer, specifically in sports? You know, it's funny. It's funny you ask that now. We were um, earlier this week, I was in Washington, D.C. at a uh, memorial service for Bill Knack, who was the longtime great uh, Sports Illustrated writer. I did a lot of horse racing, but many, many other things and just an incredibly gifted guy who passed away a few weeks ago at the age of 77 uh, from cancer. And so there were a lot of SI people at the uh, at the memorial service, and I went out to dinner the night before with a bunch of people. And I was talking with uh, Jack McCallum and Ashley Fox and Chris Stone and Steve Cannell and some others. Those are all SI writers or editors. And Jack just said, you know, we all wound up in this business. What would you have done if you weren't going to be a sports writer? And for me, it's an interesting thing because when I was a senior in college a long time ago, 1978, I had two job offers. And... Uh, one was to be a full-time sports writer at the Schenectady Gazette in Schenectady, New York, where I had actually been a summer intern uh, for two summers prior to that. Um, and the other was a job to be an assistant basketball coach at Springfield College in Springfield, Massachusetts. And I was going to be like a graduate assistant because I had coached high school basketball when I was in college as well, when, I, when, my, when my meager talent ran out and I was cut from the varsity there. So it was... Uh, so I had those two options 40 years ago, and uh, I chose sports writing, and I, I, to this day, I don't really know why, um, but it was just uh, maybe it was a little more of a comfort zone for me because I had done it, whereas coaching college basketball would have been something pretty new, but uh, I don't think I knew until then, and uh, I've had a, I had a few hiccups in the first few years where I almost bailed out of the industry, but uh, stayed with it, and uh, I think I'm stuck at this point. So Williams College is a place where you ended up doing several different things and, as you mentioned, could have taken several different paths from studying English, from writing for the school newspaper, from playing on the school's basketball team, at least up until your junior year, as the story goes. And we mentioned off air, that story is actually one of the first I remember reading that you were able to write with Coach Kurt Tong, who went on to be the athletic director of Pomona Pilzer with two small schools, liberal art colleges in California that share an athletic department. I don't know if that's still the case, but I remember it was at the time. The story is the man who helped make Pop and me, and he was able to be the athletic director for Greg Popovich, of course, the coach of the San Antonio Spurs, and he was your coach when you played basketball for them. And there's a tale of you going out for the team junior year and unfortunately not making it, having to see that when they used to post who made the team and who didn't make the team, the cuts on the wall of the school. But that also extends into an opportunity for you to coach basketball and actually end up coaching one of his children. But two years of doing that, something that I heard you've said is fulfilling and, and something that you remember. What did you take most from those two experiences looking back now from both being cut from something that you were so adamant about and had put so much time in to then having that evolve into another opportunity that led you into coaching and had you do that for two years as well before graduating college? There were a couple things, um, with that whole experience. I mean, you know, when, when, when Co coach Tong died, um, you know, a little over, well, I guess it'd be about a year ago, uh, maybe no, a little more than a year ago, a little less than a year ago. But, um, and you know, it took two paths. One is, you know, I played on the varsity as, as a sophomore in college, didn't play much. I was on the bench, but I was on the team figured I had a spot for two more years and I could, you know, work my way up and play harder and play better and get, maybe get in some game time and, uh, and it didn't work that way. Coach Tong cut me as a, as a junior. And, and uh, you know, I would still debate with him if he was sitting here whether I should have been on the team or not. But, but you got to understand, if you're in a position where you might get cut, you're probably not that great anyway. Um, so, you know, if you're on the bubble, the best players are never on the bubble on, on any team. You know, so it's like, uh, 
you know, Steph Curry was never going to get cut. So it's, uh, and then the, I, the opportunity to coach high school basketball, then I was already writing, um, at that time. And the chance to coach high school basketball just really was, uh, you know, to have responsibility and, and, uh, have, you know, young people that weren't that much younger than me, you know, three or four years, you know, put their faith and, and, and belief in me. And, and not that we were great or anything, but it just, it was a great experience. And, uh, and just helped me, I, it helped me grow up a little bit and, uh, you know, which we all needed when we're a soft junior in college, most of us could use a little growing up. And, uh, and then the, the other part of that story was years later, you know, coach Tong, I, I never really got over being cut. And, uh, you know, we're talking 15 years later, I ran into coach Tong at a final four and he introduced me to a bunch of other people as one of his former players. And that just kind of lifted the whole, the whole guilt and anger at being cut. And I realized, you know, you know, if you play for a coach once you're you're always one of his former players and, uh, and Greg Popovich, we talked about that when, when coach Tong died and, you know, it was a really great conversation and Popovich is a, the unique, really interesting guy. And it was, it was great to share that common ground with him and then write about it. You mentioned getting the opportunity to take the path into Schenectady to write for the Daily Gazette. That ends up having you go to Albany to write for the Times Union, then going to Newsday for many years as well before Sports Illustrated. Because you give a Cliff Notes version of sorts of how those opportunities came to be and what some of your different roles were before ending up at SI. Sure. Um, Schenectady, I was just, uh, you know, again, I, I had a family friend who, uh, who had a friend. So, you know, this guy was basically my great uncle and his college roommate was a sort of a rock star editor journalist in the new, in New York in the forties and fifties. And by the time I was in college in the seventies, this guy was in position. He had he had retired to the capital district of, of Albany, Schenectady, Troy, in New York, and uh, he was sort of like just doing like a, a gratis, you know, end of life kind of editing gig at the Gazette, in Schenectady, and he was able to get me a summer internship. Um, so then two years later, I took a full time job there. I I covered high school football, high school basketball, high school cross country which are tremendous experiences and fewer and fewer journalists get a chance to do that now to take that path um, up through the, up through the high school sports and the division three college sports. But I did all of that and you really learn personal relationships and you learn writing on deadline and you learn how to answer the phone. And, and it's just, it's just, I did everything. I was everything from a clerk to a columnist in Schenectady. Um, in Albany, a guy named Al Vieira came in from USA Today to take over the Albany paper, and he wanted to really get aggressive with the sports department there. So he saw some potential in me and hired me from Schenectady and basically gave me free reign to write features and take what they call takeouts then, what you call long form now, and uh, and they gave me a column, let me cover Mike Tyson, uh, just basically turned his sports page over to me to do whatever I wanted and Stayed there two and a half years, and Newsday uh, came along, and I had won a, an award for horse racing coverage and went to New York City to get the award at a banquet, and the Newsday sports editor was there, and he came up and introduced himself to me after the banquet and said, maybe we should talk, uh, send me some stuff. So his name was Dick Sandler, um, same guy that hired Tom Verducci and Peter King um, at Newsday and, and many other tremendous people. And uh, so he hired me and I spent six years there. My primary beat was college sports, you know, major division one college sports on a national basis. So you'd cover a big college football game every weekend and write features, college basketball. You'd travel around the country doing features and go to the final four every year. And that evolved into sort of a half columnist job at the end of my gig. And uh, in 1994, SI just called out of the blue and, uh, hired me to cover college football and I, that's what I did for several years. And then that's morphed into many other assignments and, uh, just sort of a general assignment gig, uh, since then. And, uh, that's kind of the path I took as sort of the, the dream path for a sports writer who's my age. Now that path is very rare now because newspapers have struggled so much, but, uh, it, it was a great way to go. And I wish that path still existed because you really do learn as you work your way up. And, uh, 
I wouldn't I, I wouldn't have traded those early experiences for anything. Although I would have been happy if it went faster. <laughs> that gamut is really something that allows you to cover a slew of things in a slew of different ways with a path from a local newspaper to a more national level to then going to Sports Illustrated writing on a more magazine type style. Your writing style now is is quite descriptive and it's lengthy writing and, and it's what you would expect a senior writer writing for a magazine like Sports Illustrated to be, almost immersing the reader into what the writer is watching and to what the writer is experiencing, which is a lot different from its deadline, just tell me who won the track and field meet at this high school, maybe get a quote from the coach. How long did it take you to develop what is now your writing style, to be comfortable with the different adjectives you use, the different ways you describe what you're seeing, really immersing the reader, opposed to when you first got started, just maybe telling a game story about an event? That's a really good question. I mean, I think it's ongoing. You know, it, it, you're never finished, never a, a finished product as a, as a writer or any kind of creative person. But I, I, it just, I'll say this. I think some people that come into this business and there's some amazing young writers doing amazing work right now and people that are in their 20s and all i can say is when i was in my 20s i wasn't ready to do amazing anything um you know i i needed to take every step that i took along the way and uh to 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 make my writing more uh, of a higher quality but at the same time all those steps were foundations in in what i'm what i try to do now and and i you know, i always you know, when I talk to students or even when I just, you know, shoot the breeze with other people that have been in the business a long time, I think it's it's just really valuable to learn to write short before you write long and to learn learn to write tight before you expand and, and to learn to get your facts right before you start expanding on those facts. And th- that small newspaper experience where, you know, you're writing – super tight deadlines and you've got to get the names right in a high school basketball game. So, I mean, the stakes are actually higher uh, because all those people are going to read the story. So I, I just think it was incredibly valuable for me to take every step that I took. And, you know, I made a joke earlier that I wish it could have gone faster, but for me, it was very valuable that it didn't go faster. I had to, I had to learn along the way and I had to experiment on myself and, uh, you know, I had to make mistakes and I had to write some really horrendous stories, but there was no Internet. So not that many people saw them. Um, so it's just, you know, I had a great opportunity to to, to experiment and fail. And, and um, you know, the, the going from Albany, going from Schenectady to Albany, where I wrote a lot more long features, was a great step to take. And, you know, I really learned a lot then. And I had some good editors there. Um, and then to get to Newsday, even better editors and, and more chances to write sort of big, important stories. So. For me, it was, it's been a real sort of gradual process all the way through. And the light bulb never went on. That still hasn't gone on. And so it's just, you know, it's just, you know, trying to, trying to improve along the way, you know, and, and, and still trying to improve. You started at Sports Illustrated covering football, but if people were to read you now, I, I guess they would put some sports in your repertoire as your main sports as far as horse racing goes, track and field. You haven't missed an Olympics since 1992, so you're going to have to learn how to write about running and swimming and whatever other sports happen to be happening at those Olympics. Is there something that's drawn you to, I guess you would refer to them as niche sports in horse racing or track and field? Some of the stuff that's maybe not as popular, but as I'm sure you've learned over the years, can sometimes make for some of the best stories if you do enough digging at these specific things. Yeah, I, you know, so I'm thinking as you're saying that, I don't know if you did a story count of my work at Sports Illustrated, I'll still bet that football would probably win. Um, but that might be because it's so heavy in the early years. And uh, although with the Internet, you know, and with digital work, maybe Olympics has passed it since then, because you go to the Olympics and you basically write a story a day for 23 days or 21 days. And uh, so that story count gets pretty high, pretty fast. Um, you know, the Olympics, I didn't go to an Olympics till 92. and I was already 36 years old by then. So, you know, I was it was a slow start. But then, like you said, I haven't missed one since then. Um, and I, I don't know, you know, you just 
when I went to my first Olympics for Newsday in 92, I certainly didn't have a specialized area. I wasn't a track and field writer, although I had covered a lot of running and I had been a competitive runner right after college. And so I knew the sport pretty well. And I had read all of SI's track coverage when I was a kid. And so I knew how to write that sport. Um, and I knew that sport, but the Olympic stuff, you're right. You kind of have to know everything. And, you know, at SI that, you know, once I got to SI in 94, the first Olympics after that was 96. And again, I had done a little bit of track and field backing up Kenny Moore, the great Kenny Moore. Um, so they just said, why don't you go? And then I did everything in 96, you know, for, we had a daily magazine. So I did swimming, I did track and field. I did, uh, wrestling, boxing, basketball. Um, so it's, you know, I, I, that's just, that just feeds into my, I'm sort of not the kind of person that wants to be an expert on anything. If I can avoid it, you know, and we say, you don't want to be that guy. They call when the big story breaks on some particular beat, um, you don't want to be responsible for knowing everything, every coaching change, every draft pick. Um, so I like to move around and, uh, the Olympics were perfect for that. And, you know, eventually at SI, Kenny Moore retired. So what little track and field we do, I kind of fell into by, by default because I had done some of it and I knew it. And then when Bill Maddock retired or left SI in 2001, I was certainly the only person in the building who knew, you know, the horse's head from its tail. So, because I had done some horse racing in the in Schenectady, Albany, Saratoga, um, and then a little bit at Newsday, so I kind of knew that sport a little bit. So, you know, I mean, I it was just logical that I would pick that beat up along with along with college football. And I mean, I covered the NFL for seven years, and I covered seven straight NCAA Final Fours. So it's like um, I was doing a lot of things at once. There were a couple of years where I went from you know, a Super Bowl to an Olympics to a Final Four to a Kentucky Derby in the same year. Um, so it's like that's a very unusual type of job nowadays where specialization is more and more and more important um, and more and more valued. And, and uh, being a generalist is different. So it's just a lot of the stuff I just fell into, but it fits with my personality of wanting to go from the Super Bowl to the Olympics. I, well, a lot of people want to go from the Super Bowl to the Combine. I never wanted to do that. By the time the Super Bowl ended, I didn't want to see a football again until July at least. So for me, it was always, you know, I think it's my interest is more peaked by doing something different every week than the same thing every week. And it helps to be versatile, kids. So that's a perfect example of that, right? <laughs> yeah, no question. On that note of versatility, being able to bounce around from sport to sport and immerse yourself in whatever you're really asked to do throughout a, a calendar year, whether that's a small event or a big event or a big athlete that you might be covering or maybe just a small local team, that versatility, I'm sure, is something that you've had to continue to improve upon and continue to have just with the nature of the industry itself. When you first started Sports Illustrated, it's it was more of an, okay, this is when our deadline is, here's how long you have to do X story. But now with the internet growing and social media and Twitter and this need, it seems, for readers to get their news immediately instead of letting a story breathe so they can read it a little bit more in depth in a magazine. They were thinking, well, we need it now. Where's 140 characters to let us know what's happened? How have you been able to evolve with that process from going from a, a much different type of atmosphere back in the early nineties to what sports illustrated and the industry has evolved into now with that timeliness factor and the knack for wanting the news a little bit quicker than maybe in years past. Yeah, it goes. Um, it really goes back to the beginning that we were talking about a few minutes ago, John. Because as the industry switched, you know, really sort of the late '90s into the 2000s to a more digitally driven model, um, sort of the traditional magazine writers, a lot of them struggled with that because they had never worked for a newspaper. They had never had to really, you know, really hammer out stories on a tight deadline, and so. Really, I, I was, it was very fortunate for me in that, you know, I had spent the first, you know, 15 years of my career writing a lot of newspaper stories. Now, at Newsday and at the Times Union and Albany, I'd written a lot of long features that I took a long time with, but there was also a lot of deadline work mixed in with that. I always tried to make my deadline stories, I always tried to set a high bar for my own deadline stories. Don't just give them who, what, where, when. 
don't just mail it in. Don't just give, don't just make the deadline, try and make the deadline and be good. And that's when I was in newspapers. So that was an easy model to carry over to writing for SI.com to, to writing stories on deadline for the internet. Um, I, I was just lucky that I had always worked to, to manage that skill set to write fast, but to write well. And um, you do have to make concessions at times. You can't make every sentence perfect and you're trying to do it in an hour and a half as opposed to a week and a half. Um, but you can you can still try to make it good. So, uh, you know, my, my goal all along writing for the Internet for SI.com has been to write magazine stories on the Internet. Um, don't just write an AP story. God bless the AP. Love all those guys. You know what I mean. Um, and I, I just I wanted to make sure that I wrote story that would look just fine in SI, even though I had written it in two hours after the finish of an event or in some other circumstances. So I was very lucky that I kind of had that, that skill set, you know, that I had used those muscles along the way, whereas uh, some of the magazine people were just really cast adrift when the internet came along. And I, that's just really fortunate for me, and, and it served me well along the way. And at the same time, I, get, I still get to write stories that I take a month to write. Um, there's just stories written more quickly mixed in along the way. Um, so, and, and I think writing short and fast and articulately and then going long and articulately, is a really good mix because I think learning to be tight and aggressive with your writing transfers well to long form, makes you be, makes you write those descriptive sentences that, that you were talking about earlier, but not get carried away, you know, not just write too purpley and not write too long. You know, you do learn to be tight when you're writing on deadline. You carry that over to writing long, and it's, uh, just think it's a really good mix. To peel back the curtain a little bit on the deadline life, I enjoyed hearing this story both as somebody that's been a writer in the past and as someone that's a Duke fan. For people that might not know, if you were to go and cover the national championship game that falls on a Monday and the deadline for SI is also on Monday night, there's obviously a very brief window that the story needs to be written in. And for this particular instance, back in 2010, when it was the Duke Butler game, the shot that almost went in, as we know, you were going to get to write about it if the story revolved around Duke and a colleague would write about it if the shot did indeed go in. So as you said in the story, you were rooting for the shot to miss just so you had the opportunity to cover what ended up happening in that game and get to write about Duke winning that national championship. But just in general to let people know what that process is like, that's an opportunity where you have to write most of the story before the game even starts and, and tell the story of this Duke team. Maybe it won't even run. So just that process for you is, is something that I think is different than some sports writers have to deal with, where you have to be prepared and then have to hope that something happens. Can you just describe what that process in general is like for covering a game like that magnitude, having to have a story ready then having to finish the story after the game's actually done, but maybe not even getting a chance to do so, depending on how the game happens as well. Yeah, and that's evolved too. But the, to that particular process, it was something that I had to do a whole bunch of times between you know '94 and into the early 2010s, and not only with Final Four games, but also with national championship college football games. I did the first like five or six of those when I got there. And then a couple others along the way, all the way up to like 2012 with Notre Dame and Alabama. Um, so it was, you know, early, early in 2013 when that game was played in the Orange Bowl um, or the national championship game. Um, so it was, uh, it was, it, that was always an interesting process because that Monday night thing, um, you know, was, uh, you know, the, it was so tight that they always wanted basically the middle 60% of your story or 70% of your story by Monday morning or Sunday night, and then then you would basically write the top and the bottom based on the outcome. And uh, I was always, again, because I was pretty fast, I was always pushing for, let me do as little as possible before the game. You know, let me, give me as many words as you can on Monday night, and I'll, I promise I'll get them to you fast. But that was a, that was a hard battle to win because the editors back in the home office wanted to, they wanted to get as much of it fact-checked and, and, and formatted as they could. So, you know, you had to kind of try and write. You would wind up writing the story of the season, you know, how this team got here. And then the top would be sort of a, a lead on what happened in the game. And 
to bottom would just be uh, some some pros to get you out of the story that, that, that reflected on what happened. And it can make for an awkward story. And, you know, I think now it's, uh, you know, they, I think they try to be a little more, um, a little more uh, generous with how much you can write on Monday night. And uh, obviously that story will be posted to the internet pretty quickly Tuesday morning. Um, so it's, it's kind of like yeah, you're doing both a, uh, an internet story and a, uh, and, and the magazine story sort of in the same bundle. So it's uh, a very tricky thing and a very hard story to write to write well. And, yeah, that 2010 thing, I would love, love to have seen Hayward Schott go in for the, just for the buzz of being there, but I, I wanted to write, you know. And Kelly Anderson, my colleague, had Butler. Um, you know, and I, and I kind of got some payback because a year later, you know, I did a 5,000-word story on, on that shot not going in and everything that led up to it and went to Butler and talked to Hayward and um, talked to all those guys and Stevens and uh, talked to Krzyzewski and all the Duke people and wrote a story on that shot not going in. You know, I think that was called a fling and a prayer or something like that. And uh, it was a great, great, fun story to write that, that was really, really turned out well. So I had it both ways in that case. And in that same vein, in 2015, when American Pharaoh won the Triple Crown, um, I, I wrote that basically my magazine story on a three hour deadline that night. Um, and I did pre-write a little bit of it, you know, some, some background that I had that other people didn't, that I knew would be in the story. And, uh, but then wrote the rest of it right on deadline. And that's exactly the story that went into the magazine. So the process has evolved and it's a little less strange than it was because we've had to change to, to meet the demands of, of the internet. Was there a story that you had written or were prepared to write that didn't end up getting published as if you were on the other side of the coin for, say, that Butler game and the shot did go in that you remember? Yeah, the last, uh, see, the last two, I want to say, well, I, let's see, I wrote the, the final four, 2009, 10, and 11. Um, I happen to say I happen to have the winning team. And then in 2012, when Kentucky with Anthony Davis and those guys beat Kansas in the national championship game, um, Kelly Anderson had Kentucky and I had Kansas. So I wrote, you know, I had written 2,000 words or 2,500 words the night before, and uh, they did not appear. But it's interesting, John. In 2002, um, I had um, I had Indiana in the national championship game, and Grant Wall had Maryland. Um, that was Maryland with Gary Williams and Juan Dixon, and they won the national championship. Indiana was Mike Davis, um, and they were sort of a Cinderella team to get there. And I had them and had a really good story um, for had Indiana won, but they didn't. And that story just disappeared into nowhere. But in 2012, when Kansas lost to Kentucky, I took my file that I had written about Kansas and basically put a little top on it and said, so here's the file you were going to read if Kansas beat Kentucky last night. Um, and I put a quick lead on it, and I went and interviewed some guys in the Kansas locker room, the losing locker room, and basically wrote it as a losing, as a 3,000-word losing sidebar. And, uh, and they posted it to SI.com, and it got pretty good readership. And uh, it was just a way to, it was a way to make the, to not throw that stuff in the garbage or the, or the recycle bin. And, uh, Again, it's part of the evolution of the business that, that's kind of made it a little more. And I'm not even sure. I haven't covered a Final Four in three years or so, so I'm not sure they still do that. They let the losing guy refashion his story, but it was a good idea at the time, and it's just you don't want to throw away content. Yeah, and that would make for a fun book to get to read, especially with your other colleagues as well put into one, the stories that didn't end up making the magazine. and. At least yeah, give give some credit to all the work that goes into it when you just have to be like, oh, well, back to the drawing board. Yeah, and then the story has value because you get reporting that's, that's pretty good and you get access and, uh, you know, it, it's they, they make for pretty good pieces. And again, it's good content. It's somebody should see it. And uh, I, 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 I was very, and for the writer, you don't have to walk out of the arena that night feeling like you didn't do any work. You mentioned Bill Knack, who passed away in April, and someone that you described on Twitter briefly in one of the Remembrances tweet as an idol, a colleague, and a friend. And it's interesting that 
He also worked at Newsday and then, of course, went on to SI. So somebody, in a sense, that you followed in the footsteps from and, and now do literally as covering horse racing for Sports Illustrated, but had the opportunity to work under him and then have him as a friend, someone that you can go to and be able to learn from. And he wrote a great secretariat piece, as I'm sure people that remember his name know of, and was great at the horse racing beat as far as many other things. What did it mean to you to be able to get the horse racing beat from him to, in a sense, be handed that torch, as well as getting to have him as a mentor and a friend throughout your career? Uh, you know, I didn't, I, I purposely didn't think about, um, it's funny, uh, you know, several years before that, I took over writing track and field for SI from Kenny Moore, who had been an idol of mine, and a guy who I actually came to know really well, better than Bill in some ways, and, uh, and you know when I started writing track and field like Kenny Moore's story style was in my head for about three years and it was hard to find my own voice on some of that stuff when I took over horse racing I pretty much decided that I was going to leave Bill somewhere else you know that I wasn't going to worry about you know he was such a Kenny was such a great track and field writer and Bill was a remarkable horse racing writer both of them did many other things Kenny Moore did a piece on Pat Riley in SI it's just towering and you know from like 1985 or 86 and that it would still hold up today remarkably well and uh but i but i when when i took over horse racing you know knack had done so much good horse racing writing for si and and uh i, I just decided i'm just gonna do my own i'm just gonna go my own way with this stuff and uh you know, i'm not gonna try and, and 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 over the time that i've covered racing it's become a less prominent beat than it was when bill covered it and, uh, you know, except when there's a triple crown and, and uh, or a really good story of some sort, um, you know, I've been lucky to, to get some of those. And uh, but I just decided that I would develop my own voice on this, that I'm, I'm not going to worry about how Knack would have done this because he had a very unique voice and a very unique style. And, and nobody's ever going to ever going to duplicate it. So I, I, I decided to write horse racing without thinking about how Bill might have done it. And uh, that was a better path for me to follow. And it's just, I think I would recommend that to anybody who's, uh, who has idols or colleagues that they're trying to live up to. I mean, go ahead and try and live up to it, but don't try to, don't try to imitate it. That was just the way I had to do it. So from the Olympics to football stadiums to the derbies to now this past year, you getting to cover your first Masters, is there an atmosphere that you still look forward to the most? Maybe a, a place that still can give you that take-your-breath-away moment. From getting to do it all, it, it probably it blends together a little bit, and you might not view a certain stadium or a certain place like some fans do just because you happen to have been there a couple times. But is there some place that you still enjoy writing about or an atmosphere that you still enjoy writing in? It's not that I've been there a lot of times that would diminish its quality. It's that Every time we as journalists walk into these iconic venues, um, we have, where we have to work. And it's, it, there's a lot of pressure involved if you want to do the work well. So, you know, when I'm standing you know, near the finish line at Churchill Downs waiting for the gate to open, it's exciting. But, but you know, my heart is beating out of my chest because I don't know who's going to win and I'm going to have to be on in like two minutes interviewing people. And I don't know who those people are going to be. Um, and it's a thing, you know, the Olympic 100 meters incredibly exciting when they say you know on your mark and set and then you know the the runners come up and they're going to go but you know in nine seconds you're going to have to be writing something and and or or be interviewing people and you know the it's it's a little different with a super bowl or final four because those things develop over time you know you got 40 minutes with the national championship game or 60 minutes with a super bowl so you know those things the pressure isn't quite as intense because because you know, those games, you kind of see what's happening as the game unfolds. And, uh, you know, you, you, you can kind of let your brain marinate in, in what's happening. So, but all those, all those atmospheres, whether it's a derby or an Olympics or a Super Bowl or a Final Four, I mean, there's, they're all great. And I, I, I just, you know, again, it's, it's, uh, I'm in those moments, not as a, not as a spectator, not as a fan, but as a, as a working journalist. So they all kind of affect your brain the same way, which is, wow, this is really cool, but what am I going to write? Who am I going to talk to? How's my story going to be structured? And when does it have to be done? 
and those things really overwhelm the moment for me. And so I just, I just engage those moments in different ways than, and as all journalists do in different ways from, from the spectator watching. And, uh, I, it would be hard to pick one because they all pretty much make me want to throw up. You know. So it's, uh, Are you still a, a pad and a pen guy, or have you evolved into maybe dictation in your phone or a recorder? How are you taking in all these events and your main, I guess, tools of the trade now? It's a good question. I yeah, I'm I obviously record everything. Um, the, the, the evolution for me has been, you know, when people started recording interviews, which was around the time that I got into the business. You know, in the late '70s, early '80s, I think. I remember the first time I used a, a tape recorder for an interview was around 1979, and uh, you know, it was a big clunky recorder. Um, and and I've st- I've never stopped recording things. Obviously, you know, the recorders have gotten smaller and more user friendly. And then you can use you can choose between a digital recorder and a phone now, depending on what you're more comfortable with. I still use a digital recorder, although sometimes a phone. So I like the I, I like the ease of. Um, of, of fast forwarding and, 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 and rewinding to try and get the certain points in the quote. And I just have a recorder that's really friendly in that way. But I still, I still tend to have a notebook in my hand when I'm, while I'm recording, I'm not depending on the weather like that. The Derby last Saturday, you were interviewing people in a rainstorm. So you weren't going to take notes, um, you know, and, and at the Olympics, sometimes your hands are too cold. So, you just hold the recorder out. But if I'm doing a feature interview, I'll have two recorders going on the table or the, you know, the counter or the car um, just to protect myself against a glitch. You know, so I'll have my recorder and my phone both recording. But I'll also be taking notes. Part of that is just habit. And part of it is sometimes I just want to write a particularly good quote just to have it right in front of me. Um, so if I haven't totally ditched the notebook, um, but I've been recording stuff for almost my whole career as well. And, uh, and the device which you use is different in the way you get at that. But 40 years later, transcribing still sucks. And that's, <laughs> that's never changed. And it's, I don't, I've tried the new transcription software that comes up and I haven't found it to be good enough yet. And, uh, man, the person that comes up with really good word for word, fast transcription software, I am buying stock in his company you know, by, by the, by the truckload of shares. So the last one for you, there will come a time eventually that you'll hang up the proverbial keyboard or the proverbial pad and pen. And I'm sure Twitter will be ablaze with from writers and fans and, and just general sports people filling it up with different things that you've been able to write and different things you've been able to cover. And I'm sure you might reflect and do the same. Is there a story that, you hope to be remembered by in a sense one that maybe not be the one that you wrote about duke or the one that you wrote that was part of the 60 stories in 60 years about mike riley's legacy at williams college it could be that but just in general is there one that sticks out to you from these 40 plus years that you would like to bring to the forefront in a sense and one you're most proud of yeah i I hate to think of how i'm going to be remembered right now. (laughs) you know it's like it's uh I don't know. I, 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 I really, you know, over the, over the years, or like for the past 15 years or so, whenever I was asked, that, I really resist answering that question. I'd love to be remembered as somebody who could do everything and do everything well. Um, and, but I mean, that's, that, that's the way I would love for people to think of me. But at the same time, um, for a long time, I told people that it was a piece I wrote in our 9-11 issue, 9-11-2001. Um, about the Andrusi family, um, who was uh, an NFL player, Joe Andrusi, and his three brothers that were all New York City firemen, and wound up being in their home on Staten Island five days after the towers came down, and uh, just an incredibly emotional day. And and uh, right back, it was it had a lot of the things that I'd like to think that were that, that I really tried to do well, which were to to get to people, to get to people quickly, to get access, and and then to write the story on a short deadline. And, uh, you know, that, and I was very proud of that issue that we did in a short time that we basically ditched the conventional SI issue, but, and, and did a nine 11 issue that I thought was really tremendous. And I'd love to people can go back and see it. It was the first issue we did after, you know, and see it in the vault that we did after, after nine 11, 2001. And the Andrewsy story was in the, 
Yeah, the Mike Riley story from 2011, I'm very proud of. The story I did on my great uncle, Johnny Evers, who was in the Baseball Hall of Fame in 2012. The story I did on a horse trainer named Jeff Lucas in 2013. The deadline story I did on American Pharaoh's Triple Crown, I, I'm proud of. But again, I, I, I'm going to stop because I really would like to think that the most important thing that I did is I tried to do every story well and on a lot of different things and in a lot of different ways and in a lot of different sports. And, uh, you know, I hope most of them turned out pretty well. So you've mentioned you weren't on the American Pharaoh bandwagon right at the start of what would be the Triple Crown run, which you got to cover after, I'm sure, too many near misses. Should we get on board with Justify here moving forward and get excited for that potentially? Well, he's going to win the Preakness, and uh, so he's definitely going to go. I mean, it, I don't think he's going to have many horses running against him in the Preakness, and I don't think there's going to be any that can challenge him. I think he'll win laughingly easily, um, and so he'll get a chance. And, uh, you know, there's a couple of horses that ran the Derby that without all the issues that 20 horses, mud, collisions, if they can get a clean race, might be able to challenge him, but I also wouldn't be shocked if it was four weeks from now and he won the Belmont by a huge margin. So, you know, I I would lean toward the latter will happen. Um, and it's going to be interesting to see how the public and the the, the, the whole uh, internet absorbs a, a triple crown three years after the last one instead of 37 years after the last one. It can't be as big a story um, because it doesn't have all that history. So I'm kind of anxious to see how that unfolds. Well, we'll jump on board just in case, and we could be wrong, I guess, in a good way, with an upset yeah. in a sense, than being wrong in the other direction. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would say. Tim, thanks so much for jumping on the show and peeling back the curtain on some of the different things you've been able to do throughout a very long career and a very well-written one. And I will attach some of these stories into my show notes. As you mentioned, there are many to have to go over over such a long career doing different things. But I'm glad we were able to hear some of your tales about some of them and some of what you're able to still do now for Sports Illustrated and will continue to do in the future. And I really appreciate getting to hear some of your stories. I enjoyed it immensely. Yeah, it was fun, John. Thanks a lot. Thanks again to Tim for jumping on the show. We'll close out the show with another installment of Five Minutes in the Film Room with Joe Burris. Joe and I have been teammates on the basketball court, sports editors for our college newspaper that is no longer in literal print and hosts for the prestigious John and Joe Sports Show, which was once found on 99.5 WUSR Scranton and the Royal Television Network. Joe usually sees more movies in a year than the 52 weeks within it to hold the reins here, but don't worry, there aren't any plot spoilers, so you'll still be able to see these films just with a better understanding of what will be in store if you do so along with Joe's final rating of the film compared to something or someone in the sports world. This week, Joe will break down Maze Runner, The Death Cure, which Rotten Tomatoes describes in the epic finale to the Maze Runner saga. Thomas leads his group of escaped gladers on their final and most dangerous mission yet. To save their friends, they must break into a legendary last city a WCKD-controlled labyrinth that may turn out to be the deadliest maze of all. Anyone who makes it out alive will get answers to the questions the gladders have been asked since they first arrived in the maze. You can find Joe on Twitter. He's at Duke Mish. That's D-U-K-E-M-I-C-H. You can also read his movie reviews, previews, and ratings at cupofdashjoe.com. Again, that's cupofdash or hyphen or whatever you like to call it, joe.com. Get your popcorn ready. Here's this week's edition of Five Minutes in the Film Room with Joe Barice. What's up, everybody? I'm Joe Barice, and this is Five Minutes in the Film Room. The young adult novel adaptation genre, if you will, found success with the release of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone back in 2001. The franchise owned the box office with eight films over ten years that made almost eight billion dollars worldwide. After Harry Potter's success, the Twilight Saga jumped in on the fun in 2008 and made more than three billion dollars after four films. At the end of Twilight's run in 2012, and a year after Harry Potter's run ended in 2011, The Hunger Games carried the torch of the genre franchise made just short of three billion dollars. These three are the gold standard for the YA genre as far as financial success. I love the Harry Potter franchise for its quality. I don't think there is a bad film in the collection. Granted, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them is within the Harry Potter universe, but is separate from the original eight films. 
I enjoy Twilight for its entertainment value. It's bad, but it's funny and enjoyable. Granted, the Fifty Shades of Grey trilogy is based on a Twilight fan fiction, but is separate from the original four films. I think the first two films in the Hunger Games franchise are excellent, and the next two really lack, leaving a sour taste in your mouth. Then came the Divergent and Maze Runner franchises, which tried to piggyback off the success of the Hunger Games. You could tell because the plots are very similar to the Hunger Games. Divergent came first and found early success. Later in 2014, the Maze Runner came out and did a little better at the box office than Divergent. The Divergent series stayed steady with its second installment, Insurgent, but fell off a cliff with its third movie, Allegiant, enough to stop production of the final film. The Maze Runner series took the hint. Although its box office stayed steady through the three films and kept its production budget relatively low, the franchise shied away from splitting the third book into two films. Maze Runner The Scorched Trials made a good chunk of change, but YA novel fatigue was clearly setting in, especially domestically. It didn't help matters that Maze Runner The Death Cure had to be pushed back with its star Dylan O'Brien suffering an injury during filming. The studio made some smart decisions to drop it in January when nothing else good comes out. It did well enough overseas to make a good profit. I mostly admire how Fox handled the franchise in a time when the YA genre was dying, but the quality is a different story. Let's go to the tape. Quickly, I think The Maze Runner is ultimately a solid film with a bad ending, and Scorch Trials is entertaining but a bit of a mess. I rented it from Redbox as more of a completion thing than an interest in how they decided to end the franchise. I love that every movie lives up to the name. There's a lot of running, and that kinetic energy makes the movie automatically entertaining. The movie's opening is a lot of fun as our heroes chase down a train to rescue their friend. There's also some great camera work early with limited cuts. What's amazing is that the death cure never gets more exciting than the opening scene. The runtime is almost two and a half hours and it doesn't need to be. Granted, I did watch this movie late at night, but I kept dozing off and not missing anything in the movie. It was all very predictable and cliche. Every beat. I knew it was coming and I have never picked up one of these books. I was literally quoting the lines as they were happening. It bored me. I do like lead actor Dylan O'Brien. You clearly see he's putting effort into the role. When he runs, he's really booking it, and it brings you into the movie more than you would think. He also handles the emotional beats very well. He's really talented, and I'd like to see him in other things. I buy his relationships with his friends in the film. I'm sure it would have been more impactful had I rewatched the other two films before seeing The Death Cure because of the three-year layoff between movies. I'm not a fan of the relationship O'Brien built with love interest Kaya Scodelario. I just didn't care, and The Death Cure spends a lot of time building it up but her actions from the previous film make her irredeemable. I love that Giancarlo Esposito, a.k.a. Gus Fring, is in the movie simply because I like Breaking Bad. The story is nothing new. It's been overdone. Like I said, The Hunger Games and Divergent are very similar, and they came out slightly before this. The Maze Runner even tacks on some zombies for good measure, as if it needed another overplayed plot point. The action is pretty good, and the plot takes one turn I didn't expect, and I liked it as implausible as it might have been. But maybe I was just happy that something surprised me. The bottom line, Maze Runner The Death Cure is a movie for fans of the franchise. It provides closure and has some decent action. I'll admit I'm being too hard on the film, because it's not bad. It has a few solid performances, especially from lead actor Dylan O'Brien, but usually the YA genre is a guilty pleasure for me. I'm a fan of Harry Potter, Twilight, The Hunger Games, even the Divergent series. But maybe I'm just tired too because the death cure really wore me out. It had nothing new to offer and left us searching for the next big YA project. I'll compare Maze Runner the Death Cure to the New England Patriots. Not so much for their sustained greatness, but more so for their trajectory as a franchise. They hit it big, winning a Super Bowl back in 2002 when they weren't supposed to, beating the greatest show on turf. Then they won again, and again, and again, and again. So much so that you just get tired of seeing them win and root for the opposing team just by default because you're bored with the same thing over and over again. But earlier this year, the Eagles took them down in the big game. An end of an era? Not quite for the Patriots. But maybe the YA genre could take a few years to regain its footing. Because as of now, it's dead. Sexy. Check! Good. Uh, check, please. That's going to do it for The Bridge. You can listen to this show and all previous shows over on my website at londonbridge.com. That's L-U-N-D-I-N-B-R-I-D-G-E. You can also follow me on Twitter under that same handle, at London Bridge. 
You can also find The Bridge on Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn. And can listen to a brand new show on Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time by searching for Sports Radio America on TuneIn. You can find The Bridge on iTunes by searching for The Bridge Sports Podcast. There you'll find the newest episodes of The Bridge every Wednesday night. And also be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. In the next installment of The Bridge, we'll dabble in the NBA, dive into Major League Baseball, circle the wagons of the National Football League, and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve. On The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports.